0: It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
1: Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered
0: your purchases made through our links, give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions.
1: We are highlighting adaptations from season nine over at our originals page, thenextreelcom slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions.
0: We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood.
1: Robin and Marian was specifically based on the ballad, The
0: Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods.
1: We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel,
0: Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman.
1: The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical.
0: Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir.
1: And we looked at a trio of John le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy.
0: Plus, all three movies in our Agneska Holland series were based on books Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore.
1: La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's
0: original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series.
1: All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash Originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast.
0: Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash Originals.
1: I'm Pete Wright. <laughs> and I'm Andy Nelson.
0: Uh, welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Charade is over, and you fell for it like an egg from a tall chicken.
1: Do we know each other? Why, do you think we're going to? I don't know. How would I know? Because I already know an awful lot of people, and until
0: one of them dies, I couldn't possibly meet anyone else.
1: Well, if anyone goes on the critical list, let me know. Mm-hmm. As you can see, she was in serious trouble. But she still found time to enjoy herself. Mrs. Lampert, any morning now you could wake up dead. Of course, she never had as much fun as her husband.
0: Now he knew how to relax. You see, it all began when he got off the train. All right, Andy, do you still contend that Charade is your favorite of the movies that we've done here? I do. After watching this trash next to North by Northwest. <laughs> it's
1: great watching two Cary Grant favorites back to back.
0: It really is. This was, this was, I have to tell you, I, I think I'm the one who turned. It's been a long time since I've seen this movie and uh, I, I like it the best too. Hey, there you go. Oh, and that Audrey Hepburn. She's Isn't amazing. She a She's just a delight. <sighs> So there's a lot of uh buffoonery in this movie um and uh and it's very very twisty uh, where where does this put us with our carry grant our, our current obsession with Cary grant obsession by obsession I mean series yeah we're
1: in 1963 this is really toward the tail end of grant's career after this, he's only going to make two more films before he retires. He was 59 at the time he made this. And, uh, you know, he really had already kind of retired from playing the romantic lead. And it was kind of a push to get him into this film to play this uh, romantic lead with Audrey Hepburn, especially because of the huge age difference. There's a 25 year age difference between the two actors. And he really was like, I felt uncomfortable about it. And so, That's why Stanley Donan had uh, Peter Stone really kind of work with the screenplay and add a lot of little elements to throw in references to the age difference between the characters and also to really make uh Reggie Audrey Hepburn's character be the one who is the pursuer. He is and it, you can really tell when you watch this movie that his interest seems pretty light and <laughs> really is he's the more passive of the two and she's really the one who's uh interested in him. And you know, I think that it ends up playing out okay the way that it works and and I think as far as Grant is concerned, I feel like it it just made for a great uh, you know, film toward the end of his acting career that just allowed him to still have kind of the the humor, the the suave debonair charm, and uh, still get into something that felt a little Hitchcockian and just have fun with it. So I'm thrilled that this was one of the films that he got to do late in his career because for me, it's it really is just his career defining as North by Northwest.
0: The uh the, so let's talk about the Hitchcock thing, because that's yeah. something that is often uh, discussed with this movie. It has been referred to as the best Hitchcock film that Hitchcock never made. Uh, and uh, it starts with a very Hitchcockian uh, opening. Right. right here, yeah. here we are. There's a train. Oh, my goodness. Andy, a train and a body in pajamas thrown from the train. <laughs> uh, if that's not a Hitchcock uh, opening, I don't know what is
1: there's you know it's it's funny when you look at the elements that make up kind of what is hitchcockian and and kind of try to decide is you know Is this a Hitchcockian film? Is there something about it that Stanley Donan created that feels very much Hitchcockian? Because there are a lot of elements that Hitchcock uses that aren't in here. Like we don't have, like Audrey Hepburn definitely isn't the the blonde that we have so often in Hitchcock's films. But we do have kind of innocent people thrust into kind of... Uh, kind of a strange and dangerous situation. That's definitely a very Hitchcockian element. And uh, so I, I feel like, and, you know, to a certain extent, you could almost say, Hitchcock really liked using famous landmarks. And you could say to a certain extent, there are some, some pretty recognizable spots in Paris that are that are brought up as different places. Right. Um, and so I, I think that, and even Stanley Donan said, he really, like North by Northwest was one of his favorite films. And he really wanted to make something that kind of had that same feel. He wanted to make something that was very much in that style. And so when he found this this script, he just like, oh, that's it. And so I feel like, I think it's kind of a, an apt thing to say that it, the best Hitchcock movie that Hitchcock never made, which is an often repeated phrase about this film. It, it feels that way. And I mean, to a certain extent, I mean, do you call the stamps a MacGuffin? Yeah, maybe. I don't know if it's completely a MacGuffin, but I feel like I feel like there are elements there that makes it feel that way.
0: Well, I think so, too. The, the, the thing about the stamps is they didn't end up being irrelevant. Right. Sure. Like, Without yeah. the stamps. There's less of a movie, or there's no chase. Yeah, there's right. No, so that's
1: why it's not quite the MacGuffin, right? Even though it's the thing they're all chasing. But you're right; it is very much an actual uh, yeah, it's element of owned, the plot. Right? Yeah. yeah.
0: Right. Uh, I I think it's interesting this this film. You know, I was thinking about it as a as as Stanley Donut's sort of love letter to Hitchcock. Right? It's a, it's an homage. It's an aspiration. Um, it's it is um it, it is a a paying of respect to. Uh, this, these other movies that he loves so much and you can kind of feel it, but it does not to me feel like a copy. There's so much personality in this movie, so much, you could say more personality. It is like the, the strongly extroverted answer to the, the introverts North by Northwest, right? Um, (laughs) That, that everybody is sort of exuberantly participating in the chase. Uh, Even Audrey Hepburn's character, who is the fish out of water, unwittingly wrapped up in this, in this Cape. And um, and so everybody is actively involved. No one's running from it. No one's turning their back on it. Uh, And, you know, in the process, it allows so many just sort of uh, flamboyant twists of fate and character turns. And, you know, uh, Cary Grant has five different identities that he moves through in this movie and is (laughs) forgiven for all of them, which I think is hysterical. Did you find at any point in this movie, and I know the answer already, I'm asking, you know, almost a rhetorical question. Did you ever find that this was awash with so many twists that it distracted from the thriller? I read a a criticism of the film that said it was too much, that it was too many twists and it didn't know what it wanted to be.
1: You know, I struggle with that because I feel like from the get go, we're set up with kind of the thrill and the kind of that spy thriller body thrown off the train. Um, But then and and then we go into kind of playing with that genre right away where it turns into the kind of the comedy, which, again, is something Hitchcock really did well, blending kind of the comedy and the thriller when we have uh, Reggie at this uh, at this fantastic ski resort in uh, this, the Alps somewhere. And she, um, you see a gun come out from behind uh, uh, an umbrella and suddenly it, it, it squirts water at her. It's a squirt gun. And so right away, we're getting that, that kind of that tone. This is going to be a thriller, but it's also going to be kind of, we're having fun with it. We're kind of doing the kind of a, a comedy version of this. And when you're having kind of a thriller like this, that's kind of a spy thriller, you know, having twists is part of the, the, the nature of it. It's like saying that Jean Le Carre has too many twists in his stories. <laughs> I mean, it's that's the nature of the story. So I, I just feel like that person either wanted a more serious uh, kind of telling of the story or just wanted a straight up screwball
0: comedy. And
1: they didn't like the fact that it was blending the genres.
0: Well, I think that's the I think that's the trick. I go back to um, Ebert. And, you know, does, you know, when you're when you're thinking about a movie, how but how well does it succeed on what it is trying to achieve? And if you go in to this movie expecting it to be, uh, you know, a a, let's just say harder core Hitchcock, right? Something with that's that's a little bit more um, angled on the thriller and the intrigue and the darkness. Yeah, like uh, a vertigo or something. It, yeah, right. Then, then this is not isn't, a funny one. <laughs> this isn't your movie. This movie is. Uh, it, it sets up very early what it wants to be, and if you don't buy it, I I understand how you're not going to like this movie. I understand how it's not going to connect with you. But does it succeed if you uh, if you're willing to give it that sense of disbelief? Um, then these people, Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn, are playing the characters that. Uh, certainly, we imagine ourselves being if we were caught in the same situation. Suave, dev- debonair, charming—always one with a, uh, a with a uh, a great line. Always one to see around corners, right? This is absolutely who I would love to be in this movie. That that sense of uh, that that sort of childlike, sort of dream state that I can go in when I watch a great movie like this is it's on display here. Very much so. Very much. Grant, we we've already talked about the age difference, but we've got to talk about Grant, the the character because or the actor, because he he's got gray hair in this movie. Right. Right. I in my head I'd forgotten It, it. Cary Grant was the the actor that never aged to me. And I think we're so accustomed now to seeing older actors who will go to great lengths to maintain their youthful appearance that to see Cary Grant actually look like an aging man was shocking.
1: Yeah, and I mean, only four years after North by Northwest, which right. I just, I feel like there was a big age jump for him, like from that movie to this movie. And it's funny, because I never noticed that as a kid. This was actually, when I when I watched this, it was the first movie experience I ever had watching Cary Grant. And so I never... Um, I, I, I don't know. I guess I never really saw him as I, I saw them both as older people because honestly, I was pretty young, and anyone who's a grown up is just a grown up, you know. I didn't really see him as more of a mm-hmm. grandfather or father to her, um, and I didn't really think about that sort of thing. I just thought that they were two older people, and that's the way it was, and I didn't have any issues, um but i yeah i i it is an interesting thing that i mean he's not dying his hair here he's really just kind of going with the gray and again i think smartly they allow the script to kind of bring that up the fact that you know they they have these moments about kind of where where the two of them part of their repartee is about each other's age that she's so young and that he's so old and i think that it it plays well and i i think grant uh i i assume that he had to be at a point in his career where he's just like i i'm gonna let the gray out and i'm gonna be okay with it because you know we're making a point of it i think it's i think it helps the film
0: how about the goons andy how about the goons was this uh, a, yes. this is a murderer's row of uh of menacing faces <laughs> it's amazing. It's great. Yeah, we've
1: got Walt, uh, Walter Matthau comes in, who's kind of the surprise goon. He's he, as it turns out, is Carson Dial, although we think he's Hamilton Bartholomew through the bulk of the film. And then, of course, the trio of James Coburn, George Kennedy, and Ned Glass as Tex, Herman, and Gideon, the three, uh, the three <laughs> the real goons. Um, I loved these guys um, when I was a kid. I still do. I mean, George Kennedy with that claw hand scared the pants off me uh, when when Tex corners Reggie in the phone booth and is just dropping map matches, like lit match after lit match on her lap. That scared the crap out of me. And, and Gideon is just, you know, he's kind of a, the goofier character, but he, there's something about him that is just... Off. And, and, but still, I mean, he sneezes all the time. And it's, you know, he almost is written as the more comedic of the bunch.
0: Well, he is, but I, I couldn't figure out the sneezing part. Was it just a general allergy or was there something that I should have connected to what was going on in the scene?
1: Oh, I just think it was just general just sneezes, a thing. sneezing fits. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, Great so, actors, all of them, though. I mean, you know, Ned Glass, we actually just saw in North by Northwest. He was the guy selling. Uh, um, he's at the ticket booth. He's uh, selling the ticket in the train station to carry Grant's character, and uh, he recognizes him in the paper. And he goes off to make a call, and then comes right. back, and Grant is gone. That's Ned Glass. So the two of them are um were had just been together a few years before, and then of course, I mean James Coburn who you know, he'd be at a point, he's at a point here where he's just about to start doing his own kind of little spy spoofs with the Flint films. And George Kennedy, you know, he is a great kind actor. He does so many great roles, but he can also be really tough. And this is my first experience watching him. He's always scared me a little bit.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the hand. Uh, does a great job with the hand and that uh, the, the fight scene that they have on the roof was fascinatingly thrilling, given uh, sort of who they are. I think they right, did a right. fantastic job making that just just scary. I always wonder how he got off the edge. Yeah, he just leaves him hanging there from his hand, his claw. Uh, 188 credits that uh, that he ended up with. I, I missed George Kennedy died in 2016.
1: You know, sadly, one of his later films in his life was uh, Show Two. <laughs> warm, warm place in your heart. Oh boy, I tell you, that was one of those ones. I was like,
0: oh, really? Got to be in that no, one. I have to bring up. That's the one that had the mold on the lake.
1: Oh, uh, that that is the best story in that one. Yeah. But Old Chief Woodenhead is the story he's in, where the little, I know, you know the yeah. You know, statue that comes to life but uh, you know he's in the naked gun movies i mean he Fantastic definitely was all over the place in the naked with, gun movies. with the genres that he did yeah um, so that's one thing i always did enjoy about about him
0: the final insult that would have been great if that had been his last movie <laughs> i notice you have not yet made a james coburn connection to hudson hawk so i will do it here talk <laughs> bunny, bye-bye. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, they were great thrillers. And then Walter Matthau, can we talk about his face? There's something on it. That oh, mustache, man. Rough. <laughs> I mean, good for the character, but rough for I Matthau. Just,
1: he just ends up looking extra sleazy yeah. when he has a mustache on his It's not face. <laughs> even a
0: full mustache. Like, it's just like, oh, hey, I woke up yesterday morning and I knew I was going to be doing this. So I thought I would start growing a mustache. <laughs> right. It's not too thick. Not too no, thick. Not too thick.
1: <laughs> He's, you know, it's funny. I've watched a lot of Walter Matthau films lately. And so I, I, I just, it, it's been a great reminder of how much I love seeing him on screen. He's just so much fun. And um, although I will say Hello, Dolly was one of the ones that I recently watched. And I will say it's not fun watching him sing. That was a little rough for me. Um, but here, <laughs> watching him be this character who uh, who seems to be helping her but turns out to be the bad guy, is just great. I think that he—and I don't know— is this the only time I've seen him where he's kind of ends up being the antagonist? It may be. I, I just I think that he ends up working really well
0: in this role. I do, too. Uh, he's he's not very threatening. Right. Even in the big standoff at the end, I'm not threatened by him. But I think that's OK um, that he, he's still, after the turn, a bit nebishy. Well, that's what
1: I think that works really well, and it's, it's an interesting thing to bring up because I, I like the fact that you know once you have a gun in your hand, it doesn't matter how nebbishy you are; yeah, you're right. as as likely to kill someone as anyone else. You know, mm-hmm. um, if you're if you're threatened, and so I think that that's interesting for him, and I. I love everything about the climax of this film here from the moment where she is being chased by grant through the columns and you have the fantastic mm-hmm. editing kind of cutting between the two of them to meeting up with uh with matthew's character and the reveal of who he whoever one is and then the run into the theater and the hiding and the the way that they play with the uh the trapdoors to Uh, kind of save her it's just it works really well i i always wish that there was a way that she could have been a little more uh a part of the actual solution to the climax of the film and and getting rid of the antagonist Mm -hmm. um you know it's 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 one of those you know man comes in and saves the day sort of endings but i i write that off a little bit as of its time I think largely it's an incredibly strong way to finish the film Well
0: well and she's very spry in those heels she outruns everybody <laughs> Boy, I'd tell you she could just right. She should have just kept running. She didn't need to go into the she, theater. She could go totally Forrest Gump on the whole thing. Although I will say that final climax, the the whole setup of the final climax. She runs into the theater and she's in the conductor's box, uh, and so she's you know she's got the little footlights at the at the base of the stage, and we have um we have uh, Coburn who's walking around on the uh, top of the stage. He doesn't see her until ironically. Uh, Carrie Grant gives away that she's in that conductor's box. He hears her and he starts walking toward her. And the whole setup of Cary Grant under the stage and her in the l- box, and now the, the door is jammed. Locked she can't in the get box, out. right, yeah, yeah, right. She can't get out. And Coburn walking very slowly over to... Not Coburn, Mathau. Uh Mathow. I'm sorry. <laughs> I misspoke <laughs> earlier too. Uh, Mathow walking very slowly over toward her in the box while we see... That the entire stage is—it's got all the the trapdoors for the orchestra, right? As pieces, I'm assuming that's where all the little chairs go up and down when they put them on stage. But I guess I, I was guess assuming for—I
1: was assuming it was for a show where they actors would drop through for so particular doors. I know, really a so lot. many
0: trapdoors. There are so many trapdoors. <laughs> I, I know so thing.
1: little. Clearly, I know so little yeah. about putting on a stage show when
0: it has that many trapdoors. What show is that? <laughs> That has trapdoors every, like they are, it's just a grid of trapdoors, three feet Like, is that how small
1: they are? Like, Javert when he jumps off the bridge in Les Mis? Is he (laughs) he aiming for a little
0: square that small? Because that's horrible. That is like, that is malpractice. (laughs) It's like not kind to your employees or your actors. It's like
1: circus diving when you're diving (laughs) (laughs) into the the
0: comically small pool of water, right? (laughs) The first Cirque du Chalet show was was done right here. it it is crazy, and and so we have this. He's playing like uh, Nemesis Battleship, uh, Cary Grant, right? He's underneath, and he has all these levers, <laughs> and he's listening for where the uh, where the footsteps are, and that so that he pulls exactly the right coordinate release to open that trapdoor. And it is for for something that I'm looking at it. I'm thinking this setup is so stupid with all the trapdoors. How stupid! It's really thrilling. I am so in it i just can't think that hard about it because i i am, <laughs> it just feels like the ultimate bamboozle and yet it is great it's yeah
1: great. it is great and i i'm always thinking if i think about it too much i'm like okay why doesn't he just grab all the handles and yeah. just pull them all real yeah. quick and right. and just so the whole stage is just like this this so grid that yeah yeah exactly
0: yeah or just just like at random so he feels so then you get to play a game Right? Yeah, right, you never know which one's going to drop. Oh, could have exactly. been what the movie that could have been. <laughs> uh, anyway, it is a great uh, climax to the movie, and the way he falls and the way they let him land on his feet and sort of bounce into Ugh. unconsciousness. I don't know what happens to him. Like he didn't sustain a head injury.
1: Oh, and yeah, I, I would assume that you know a fall like that. You're landing on your feet. It's going to probably snap your legs when yeah, you land. Something broke. Yeah, and. Uh, yeah, I would assume that they get him and he's in the hospital. Yeah, In my head, ever since I watched this, I've always assumed he's dead. Until just now when we when you bring that up. How weird is that, that I just always assume that he falls that, and dies? That he fell to his death? But yeah. It, yeah no. it makes no sense, though. You're right. No. Why would he fall if he just lands on his feet? Yeah, I mean, he, he falls, he lands
0: on his feet and just sort of bounces up and... Ugh, and then he's laying on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. I clearly also know nothing about gravity, so (laughs) we'll let that go. Uh, Okay, so the way we meet these three guys is, so this is the end of the movie where we've whittled them down, but the way we meet the nemeses in the beginning is also a great setup, the funeral.
1: It is. It's a really clever way to introduce us to these three characters who are going to be so antagonistic through the bulk of the film, where you have them each come in to uh, Reggie's, you know, dead husband's funeral and they each kind of come in to offer their uh kind of sympathies but also to check on the fact that is he really dead and the way that they're like you know we first have have uh uh it was Gideon. last right yeah. yeah Gideon come in and kind of just kind of check him to see if he's dead and sneeze and then you've got Tex come in and and kind of do the the whole mirror thing to make sure he's not breathing.
0: And then so great the mirror under the nostrils, it's right? Just great.
1: <laughs> so you're already like on edge because these guys are kind of so off. And then of course Scobie comes in and he just slams the door open. Clearly an angry person, jabs him with a pin. <laughs> storms out. He is unhinged. Oh, wow. It's a great way to introduce these antagonistic characters with very little dialogue. You get it all through action and you get a sense of who these characters are. And then what the story does is we we've set up these characters as the antagonists Just because right after this we go to kind of the we have the jovial scene where we have Reggie and at this point Peter going to the, they see the Punch and Judy show, and then they go to this uh, club where they do this crazy orange game really fun time for these two characters to get to hang out and get to know each other. But then you you get these characters, these three antagonists start threatening her. And that's when it really kicks in. You've got these antagonists and then the twists come because then all of a sudden Peter is working with them and he's a different person. And then all of them are working together. It's like the way the story shifts, I just think it's such clever writing because you never know where it's going to go. That's what's great with having these antagonistic characters where they're the bad guys, but then then all of a sudden, everybody's working together. It's like you just don't see that very often. It's really clever writing.
0: It's really clever writing the way they sort of unravel Grant's uh, worldview, right? That he he goes back and forth from being, you know, the the assistant, the helpful um, sort of mentor, the grandfather character, <laughs> weird, uh, to, to being, like you say, he's working. With them. Then ultimately, the way he ends up. Uh, the head of this department at the Treasury department yeah. working in the embassy and that he was the one trying to save the stamps all along. Uh it, you just to retrieve the government's money, really right, to get the government's <laughs> money back, which was uh I, I think and, and we should probably set up if you haven't seen it in a while, the the stamp bit. The stamp and the gold bit is something that I feel like we've we've either seen before or we're about to see again um the the way this the the whole caper was built up, these five soldiers right all the the b- bad guys plus dial uh and lambert uh or Lambert, uh, lambert were were yeah. all uh, soldiers together in in the war, and they were supposed to bring they were members of the o s s and they were supposed to bring two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in gold. Uh, To the French resistance. Deliver it to the French resistance. But they didn't do that. Instead, they buried it. And their whole plan was to come back together after the war and retrieve the gold. But somebody else, Lambert, took the gold alone and converted it into stamps, these three precious stamps.
1: Well, first it sounded like he converted it to all the stuff in their house, right? Because then she yeah, said right, he went right. and sold all of it for $250,000 at auction, yes. and then he took that and
0: converted it to the stamps. Into the stamps, right. These three collector's stamps worth many, many tens of thousands of dollars each. Yes. And so that's how we got to the stamps. The whole idea of the these members of the military, of the government, deciding to double-cross their orders, bury money— Somewhere, in order to retrieve it later, I feel like is a story we're about to see again. <laughs> I feel like it is coming, coming soon. Coming, co- it will already be here. It will already That's have true. been released. It will Netflix. already have, have been released. That that is that is, uh, and it's coming. I think. I think it's coming on the film board. <laughs> If we play our cards right, uh, we'll be talking about it soon, which is which is funny to me because I don't like the trailer communicates every we're talking about the five bloods and the trailer to me communicates everything about this movie. I'm watching this movie thinking, I think this movie is about to come out again. And nowhere can I find that there's any relationship to these movies. So we shall see. Well,
1: it's yeah, because I mean, it's really like. The story of the robbery itself, and it's yeah. kind of like Three Kings also, right? Yep. It's, it's that same type of uh, robbery during wartime, although it depends on what they're stealing. In this particular case, I would argue that these five soldiers <laughs> are committing a war crime by stealing the government's money that's supposed to go to resistance fighters. Yes. It's like, there, that's, that's pretty bad. Three Kings, oh, they're stealing they're gold from Saddam. Yeah. It's like, okay, it's still, you know theft but you're stealing it from the enemy um, I'm not sure uh, where it is with Defy Bloods as far as uh, who's stealing what I can't recall from the trailer
0: but look at how much moral gray area we've uncovered on the show and he's okay with some war crimes <laughs>
1: <laughs> well the war crimes here all five of the thieves are dead by the end of the film <laughs> so just desserts everybody <laughs> that's right <laughs> what are you doing in here
0: I'm having a nervous
1: breakdown. I want to talk a little bit about their relationship between uh, Reggie and um, Peter, Alex, Adam, Brian. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, I think that another reason that it ends up working so well in this film is because this film it came out in the early 60s but it's a time when you're already getting a little more kind of of that sexually exploitative types of films and relationships depicted in the 60s it's already kind of kind of starting to make that tonal shift in what films are being released and stuff. And that's something I think is really clever. And especially, I mean, just look at look at the James Bond films. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I want to say by this point, is it two James Bond films will have
0: come out by 1963? From Russia with Love. It came out in from May. Russia with Love. May of the same year. Not Actually, not in the U.S. either. It didn't come out until 1964 in the U.S., From Russia with Love. So really <laughs> the only thing that, that we had had was... Uh, Dr. No. Gotcha. There's definitely a lot
1: less to <laughs> to the relationships than there are in this film. This film, it's there's this very much a romantic relationship, and by the end, it's leading to marriage, right? It's not just bedding the woman because she's next to you and she's hot. And I, I think that that's something that is a little bit more of a throwback to kind of old films from the 40s, 50s, even the 30s that we're getting a sense of here with these two characters. And I think that that's really, really great because, I mean, even if they have lines that feel a little bit more like kind of poking at the at the Hayes Code and, and just lines that kind of play with that line a little bit, I, I don't think that it really ever goes down the road that it could have gone with other spy films of the era. And so I think that that's something else that really makes this one stand out. And we have a female who's really kind of leading the charge. We don't need... Uh, a James Bond or a Flint or uh, any of these other kind of spy characters that have happen to be male to be leading the charge. We have Reggie, who's the one who's kind of figuring all this out. I think it's a thrill.
0: I there is there is something that's just so joyously randy about her. Like the way she plays her pursuit of Cary Grant is fantastic. If I may highlight the shower scene, and it is a shower <laughs> scene that is so. Um, It's so ridiculously cute and it pays off. It's a. It's like a setup of a joke that works in its own right but when you find out who he is at the end, it is made even better. Like the reason he chooses, that she, she tricks him, she screams in her room so that he will burst in to try to protect her and then when he's in the room, she's standing behind the door, she closes it and locks him in and uh, invites him to take a shower in her bathroom and he does. He leaves the door open and he does. He gets in the shower and he leaves the curtain open and he's in the shower and he's wearing his suit and he just says drip dry and starts reading the label <laughs> and it is adorable and a great laugh and a great moment between these two that i think does a, a wonderful job of setting up their relationship and how you know it, it's that sort of curses foiled again pursuit moment that you know she is she's trying she is uh, she's she's working him and he he's just can see around corners
1: it's it's just super charming it's that and that's what's great about it is these characters are just so incredibly charming and it does make you really pine for this type of storytelling where all of it was a little more kind of coded and stuff and I, Mm -hmm. i just feel like it just ends up allowing for a really clever way to kind of portray relationships like this even if it does by the end and it's leading to marriage, you're like, okay, how long have they been together?
0: Like all of a few days? And they're already yeah. getting married. But hey, you know what? Well, I, I think she was ready, you know, the moment she found out her husband had been killed and sold off all of their worldly possessions and she was left with a couple of suitcases. I sort of get the feeling like they could have moved on to marriage back in that scene in the house. <laughs> Probably. She was crushing on him early.
1: She was crushing on him while she was still married, as married, far as she knew, right. she at was, the resort. Because she's, I mean, she's just like, I'm getting a divorce. Like, she instantly yeah. was, like, already in a place, ready to leave her husband.
0: So good. Ugh. <laughs> uh, uh, still, what, one
1: of my favorite lines that comes so early in the film is in that scene, uh, when she's like, I already know an awful lot of people. Until one of them dies, I couldn't possibly meet anyone else. <laughs> I
0: Seriously. do. I love that line. So good. It's one of the. It's another one of those lines. It's in that category of lines that I, I adopted into my own vernacular, and then after many years, forgot where it came from, and so it just felt like me. <laughs> <laughs> like how did I get to be so clever? How did I get to be so witty? Oh, right, right. I remember now. Yes, that would <laughs> be our, our. It was writers. Peter Stone, the yes. other witty Peter.
1: Yes, right. Peter mm. Stone, uh, he and Mark Bame had written this uh, spec script. Um, this was back in, I, I don't know if it was the early 60s or late 50s, but they'd written a spec script. It was called The Unsuspecting Wife. They took it around in Hollywood. Nobody was interested in it. They talked to all the studios and nobody bought into it. And so Stone, he said, you know what, I'm going to just take our script. I'm going to write it into, into a novel retitle it charade and then he also um got it serialized in redbook magazine which was something everybody was doing with their books at the time and it was that redbook serial that actually caught the eye of the studios who had rejected it before so it's funny how it had to go through this this writing cycle to get to a place where the studios like ooh look at this and a that's a trusted of course, property uh, right exactly that's when stanley donan came in he had just finished a three-picture deal with 20th Century Fox um, a little bit before, and that's where he had met Cary Grant when they did uh, Kiss Them For Me in 1957. He, at that point, became an independent producer-director, and he and Grant just totally hit it off. They formed their own production company called Grandin Productions, and they signed a distribution with uh, distribution deal with Warner Brothers. And from that point on, he was a self-producing uh, person for almost the rest of his career, generally under Stanley Donan Productions, unless he was doing something with Grant um, through Warner Brothers, and then there was Grandin Productions. This was not a Grandin Production film. This was Stanley Donan. He did it with Universal, um, and uh, he saw that story, and he's the one who bought the rights, and then he had Peter Stone uh, rework the script and tailoring it specifically to Grant and Hepburn, which we've kind of talked about already. Um, Stanley Donan, he did have this a couple things to say about uh, Cary Grant. He said, Cary Grant's real magic came from his attention to minute details and always seeming real which came from enormous amounts of work rather than just being something that was God given. He also said that Grant was the greatest and most important actor in the history of the cinema which is a pretty big and broad statement I guess when he's your producing partner maybe that's the sort of thing you throw around (laughs) a a little more casually
0: well, I do want to, to bring up the point because you made something made a comment. It was last week or the week before about Cary Grant as a movie star. Right. He's he's a movie star. When we see him, you it, it's hard to lose yourself in the character that he's playing because he's so Cary Grant. Yes. Is that is that a fair characterization?
1: Oh, Absolutely. I think that's true. And, I, you know, sure, I think that makes him an incredibly important actor in the history of the cinema because he helped define what a movie star was, how a movie star drew an audience to to the theater, things like that. I don't know if he's like, you know, a Marlon Brando type or a um, Dustin Hoffman type who really buries himself in his roles. But still, he is like, there's something about him that helps define Kind of just movie star.
0: Well, and again, I would go back to my relationship with him in my head, which is he is the man that I would imagine myself to be in that scenario. It's not like I'm not imagining myself as the 400 pound Brando at the head of the river. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) that's a that's a character piece, and I get that for the story. But for for Cary Grant, he is one of the classic Hollywood avatars. And that's why we went to see him in movies, right? Because he's a guy who draws us into the experience of the film, who allows us to say, I would say uh, Hepburn is the same thing, right? When you talk to women like my mom's age. They went to see movies for Hepburn and Grant because they were the relationships that they always wanted to be when they grew up. That yeah. was what they aspired to. That sort of that that the way they spoke, the way they moved, the way they dressed, and it was like it, it, when the mo- movies changed and had new demands for uh, you know for these sorts of of superstar actors. You know, you compare Cary Grant to how uh, Brad Pitt's career could have gone, right? I mean, he ended up taking some very risky roles, but Brad Pitt could have been the poster child of this kind of actor had he been born 30, 40 years prior.
1: This is the fourth and final film that uh, Grant does with Stanley Donan. He did Kiss Them For Me in 1957, Indiscreet in 1958, and then The Grass Is Greener in 1960, and this one. You know, the only other actor I wanted to bring up was Jack Marine, who plays the inspector, the police yes. inspector here. I think he's great here. He's not an actor I'm that familiar with, but I did want to bring him up because I found this to be really interesting. His last film was as the uncredited French reporter on the TV news in Monsters, Inc. in 2001. I'll be darned. He, he's the sort of face that would work well in our uh, French crime series. Like yeah. He seems like the sort that would pop up there.
0: Oh, he's, he's every French police stereotype. every one of them all the way to the mustache
1: yeah and you know he's as parisian as as the locations here i mean what they filmed in paris it just i mean it really helps i mean obviously there's sets and there are uh you know um, we have the backdrops like when they're on the on the river and stuff but i mean it just it feels so on location and that's something i love about the movie
0: you know, I feel like if we're going to talk about Jacques Maureen, we should at least name drop Paul Boniface as the stamp dealer mm. um, who was in a lot of things. Uh, he was. a healthy, healthy career, especially, um, you know, much earlier uh, than this movie. And I'm, you know, I'm not a, a real student of, uh, you know, him, but he does have this. He has one of those faces that you realize, oh, my gosh, I've seen that. Uh, I've seen that face before, and he has a deeply sensitive moment in this movie. He has it's he sort of stops time uh, as he's he shares his adoration for the work that go into these tiny tiny stamps, and we get these beautiful kind of macro sort of shots of the stamps with these little tweezer tips in them as he's talking about how I'm not a thief, and I I for a brief time these were mine, and that's all I need, and it's just. It's just a beautiful, heart-wrenching sort of moment.
1: He and uh, Jacques Marine would be in The Train, John Frankenheimer's film, the very next year. The next year, yeah. Yeah. You know, so you you brought up uh, just the fact that you were talking about him. I, I want to talk about the stamps real quick before. I know we also want to talk about the sure. music. But yeah. I do want to talk about these stamps, because I think that's an interesting thing that I never really dug into until this. And I now find it really interesting. So we see three stamps, that the story kind of is focused on because the, they are what everybody is pursuing once mm-hmm. they realize that's what they're pursuing. So we see the Swedish four shilling stamp from 1854, the mm-hmm. Dengula Fireskillingen, which translates to the Yellow Lighthouse, who he's, which he says is worth 85000 This is actually, it's interesting. All three stamps are not real but they're based on real stamps and all of them have been shifted. Their denomination has been shifted by one. And so this is, it's the four shilling Swedish stamp. It's based on the three shilling Swedish Treskilling yellow. It is the only one of its kind last sold in 2010 for at least 2.3 million that's what it had been valued at they they know it sold for at least that much but it could have been more actual price was kept confidential today it's estimated to be worth over 3 million dollars the three-cent Hawaiian blue, they said a man was murdered uh, murdered another man for it in 1894, which is true, except it was actually based on the two-cent Hawaiian missionary stamp, only a handful of which are still around. The estimated value of these are between 285000 for a used one and 575000 for an unused one today. And the 82 Gazette Moldav, uh, which is a hand painted stamp from Romania, it is based on the 81 Para, which is the currency Moldavian Cap de Boer, or Bull's Head stamp. The first set of these uh, Romanian stamps were sold in 1858. There are only two copies that survive in mint, never hinged, original gum condition. They're estimated at between 80 and 115 thousand dollars per stamp. So um, it's interesting that that's the film that this uh, stamp collector says is worth the most, $100,000 in the film, but it's actually worth the least in reality. The the Mm. one that's worth the most is the first one. That's over $3 million for that one little stamp. Wow. Yeah. But uh, one of the reasons... I guess they changed the denominations and all this, is because rare stamps are worth so much more, and they did have to come up with stamps that just happened to equal just exactly $250,000. Yeah, right. So
0: uh, It's funny looking at all of these stamps. Are you a stamp guy?
1: You know, I did collect stamps as a kid, but I, it was never really for things that were worth things. I just really loved the looks of them, and I just loved all the different art from different countries. So I still have, like, all the stamps I collected as a kid. I've just... I've never done anything, anything with them, but I, I just find them to be really interesting little, little tiny pieces of art.
0: You should, you should see if in your collection you have one of the British Guiana one-cent magentas. You should oh, see yeah. if you have one of those. Yeah, because apparently it, it, in auction in 2014, it fetched $9.5 million. <laughs> wow. You think you have one of those? Uh, I, I bet I don't. I bet I don't the, the,
1: looking through that but the, you know what it's it's uh it's schrodinger's cat of course I do of until course I you look do.
0: yeah don't look <laughs> don't look no no one will look it's funny to look at how many of them the value is determined by the inversion like the error in printing like the inverted jenny right the classic um yeah. i guess that's the the classic upside down biplane that that was screwed up there's a cia invert uh where this candle is printed upside down that's worth millions. Uh it it makes me think that people are vastly undervaluing the mistakes I've made in my life. <laughs> <laughs> they they're worth a lot more, let there me tell you. So much when I screw up
2: stuff. <laughs> that's a great way to start looking at it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, right. How about Henry Mancini? Do you think he ever made any mistakes?
1: Uh, he doesn't in this film. I'll Certainly tell you that much. not. Oh my god this music it's so good right out of the gate and and with the brilliant um, Morris Binder titles that we have where it's just like the swirling arrows and just the yeah. lines on screen and then that tick, 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 you know, that little beat mm-hmm. kicks in, and it's just like this incessant driving beat that feels as swirly and as mysterious as everything else. And, and of course, the song that he wrote with Johnny Mercer, which that oh, that just defines this movie as much as anything else. I mean, I just love that song. It's got such a great vibe to it that has this mystery, this romance. There, It can be played for tragedy. It just, like, everything about the music works flawlessly in the film.
0: It is fantastic, and unlike you know, this is one of those Mancini things. Like, Unlike some of these 40s, 50s, 50s, 60s films that we talk about, this, the soundtrack is, might be kind of hard to find. Not this one. It's everywhere, and it's great. Stream it, find it, listen to it. It's all over the place. And the whole thing you can listen to all the way through, all the way to the theme that he wrote for Punch and Judy, which I, I'm not sure. We just had a conversation with somebody in the community about Punch and Judy and how we might not know what Punch and Judy was because it was such a sort of European thing. B- yeah, and because, Australian. because it,
1: well, I think it's was because uh, somebody just watched the Judy and Punch movie, and mm-hmm. so they're like, oh, I'm not sure people in America know much about Um, about this, this whole thing, but I think it was just one of those things where I I feel like it's, maybe it's only because of this, but I feel like Punch and Judy, I don't just the, I think, I don't know. I feel like it's kind of, it's been in the zeitgeist, right? Like, I feel like I've always known about Punch and Judy. I just never, I don't know if I've ever really seen an official Punch and Judy show, but I I definitely know about the two puppets and kind of that whole thing. So
0: they're not good to each other, Punch Uh, and Judy. No, they're not too great. The things we do for comedy. All right. There are some interesting
1: facts and tidbits with this film. Um, This film was released Christmas 1963, and Audrey Hepburn has a line in it, at any moment we could be assassinated. Well, of course, this came out shortly after President John F. Kennedy was assassinated, and so they actually had to dub over the line to, at any moment we could be eliminated. It's was pretty obvious her lip reading her lips definitely didn't match up and it was something that was fixed um when the film was restored it got back to the original dialogue um this film however um uh, there are it, it's it fell into the public domain i'll talk about that here in a minute but if you do find public domain versions they may actually still have the original dubbed line As far as the public domain, this film has the copyright notice. At the beginning, it has the year by Universal Pictures and Stanley Donand Films, all rights reserved, but it omitted saying copyright or the little C symbol. Mm -hmm. And at the time, this was anything before 1978, you had to have the word, the abbreviation, or the symbol in order for copyright to actually be carried. And so the instant the film... The instant Universal released the film, it entered public domain because it did not have that verbiage in that. Obviously, it's since changed, but it's very interesting that this is one of those films that just kind of everybody has been able to release because of that public domain issue. And I guess the film's available, but the music itself, I guess, is still technically copywritten if used outside the context of the film. So, yeah, I didn't realize that. Um, that but obviously
0: fascinating. Did you find any other films that, that because of this, we'll call it a typographical omission, lost their license? You know, I don't know.
1: Um, the only other one that I know for sure is in the public domain is Detour, which we've also we've talked, talked about, about on the show. I just don't know if it was for the same reason or not.
0: You really wonder
1: who that title guy was. <laughs> right and if universal is uh you know uh, had a few strong words with him
0: oh my goodness
1: yeah the um the last little fact and tidbit, there was a moment early on in the film where Reggie goes to the U.S. Embassy to meet Bartholomew, mm-hmm. and it really struck me this time, because two men get on the elevator and she gets off, and the camera stays in the elevator, and we we join these two guys as they're having this conversation about bluffing somebody. He says, I bluffed the old man out of the last pot with a pair of deuces, and I'm like, why are we staying with these guys? I don't get this, yeah. and now she's out there. I'm like, okay, so there's something odd about that. Well, it turns out that the guy speaking is actually Peter Stone, the screenwriter. And what's interesting is the voice that he's speaking with is actually Stanley Donen's voice. <laughs> it was a way to do a joint cameo for the the screenwriter and the director to get them both in there, which is really funny. And then Stone, his voice actually got to be used later as the U.S. Marine who's guarding the embassy at the end of the film when they go inside. And she's like, "Excuse Thanks, me, Marine. soldier." Yeah. yeah, she's like, excuse me, shoulder, shoulder, marine, ma'am. That's uh, that's Stone's voice. So, but
0: not him. It was a, it was, but a not him. Okay. <laughs> the, I have to say, uh, uh, particularly because you you bring up the elevator, which I thought was an interesting choice. Uh, you know, an, an interesting way to use the camera. The more, in, even more interesting that I wrote down was the uh, the corpse cam.
2: Oh, I yeah, yeah, right, right. Fascinating
0: choice to do. She's she's there to identify her husband's body and we see the toe tag and we see that. And then we shift to this POV from inside the the refrigerator drawer and we're looking up at the mortician or the the i don't know what he was the person working in the morgue yeah Yeah. and he's pushing the refrigerator drawer in and we're in there from the perspective of the body moving into the drawer and it's it is it's a once again it's one of those deceptively thrilling camera angles that uh sort of reminds you this is a movie that (laughs) contains multitudes
1: and it's a really interesting one because it's clearly not the dead husband's point of view because he he's been one covered up under the sheet, two going toe first into the drawer, yeah. not head first, and the camera is looking looking out at him, so it would be reversed. Yeah, uh, and so it's like it's just an odd position, but it is something that just kind of throws you and and gives you a different perspective that kind of keeps you on edge. It's it's really clever filmmaking, which I th- think Donan exhibits throughout the film.
0: Uh man behind the camera, Charles Lang. Was, uh, was our man behind the camera. And we? I don't believe we've talked about anything else he did. He had 152 credits in the studio uh, period, and uh, he's great.
1: Yeah, and uh, also one of those guys who um, was recognized, uh, maybe not winning, but recognized by the Oscars for quite a bit of his films. Mm-hmm. He was nominated quite a number of times. I think Ace he only one won one. Yeah,
0: Ace, Ace in the, in the hole. hole. Okay, there you yep, go. We got one. Yep. We got one.
1: It feels very, like, shadowy when it needs to be, uh, romantic when it needs to be. I think he captures the essence of the film. Absolutely.
0: Apart from the homage that I insinuated earlier maybe coming to this film, do we have any other official sema- sequels, or- sequels or remakes?
1: <laughs> <laughs> we do have one. Yes, indeed. It is uh, Jonathan Demi decided to do a remake of this, it's kind of a remake to it while also being an homage to Truffaut's Shoot the Piano Player. Mm -hmm. It is The Truth About Charlie from 2002 with uh, Mark Wahlberg and, and Tandy Newton. I thought it was interesting. It was an interesting twist on it. I don't know if I completely... Loved it. I saw it in theaters. I haven't seen it since. Um, but it is something that I'm really curious about to kind of revisit now after having just watched this again to see if there's anything about it that really makes it stand out as being um worth our time. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I, I actually I don't think I saw it. It's uh, worth checking out. It
1: it yeah. definitely was a period where Jonathan Demi, my <laughs> the one memory I have of it is. His camera work throughout parts of it were like, oh, this is getting a little too crazy now. What are you doing, man? Just kind of (laughs) the cameras all over the place. And I'm not sure why. Um, Because, I mean, that was something Debbie really was uh, kind of doing quite a bit at the end of his career. So,
0: Pal, his hair got wild. His eyes popped a bit. He just got crazy, Demi. Are you calling him Popeye? (laughs) I did, I've discovered now, after our Peter <laughs> Laurie discussion, that that's okay, right? Isn't that okay? That's the thing.
1: Uh, oh, sure, Pete. Yes, you go ahead. You go ahead. No, did I tell you I, wor- I worked with Jonathan Demi on a film?
0: <laughs> no, Andy. Please tell
1: me how you worked with Jonathan Demi on a I, film. I got to work with him on Jimmy Carter, Man from Plains, his documentary following uh, Jimmy Carter on his book tour.
0: Okay. How was that? Did he do weird camera angles? How were his he was, eyes?
1: He was one of the cameramen. He was running around with his little, I don't know, it was a handy cam of some sort filming at this thing. It was it was surreal being in the room with Jonathan Demme and Jimmy Carter <laughs> while all of this was going on.
0: <laughs> did they totally talk unrelated about, to this movie. Did they, but. Did they talk any about, Hamil- or about Hamilton, <laughs> about Habitat <laughs> for Humanity? That comes up a lot around Carter now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> anyway anyway how to do an award season?
1: It wasn't a big award movie. I think it was just a little too uh genre for people to. Put into the award circles, but it did have three wins with nine other nominations. At the Oscars, uh, the song that uh, Mancini and Mercer wrote for this, the title song, Charade, lost to Call Me Irresponsible from Papa's Delicate Condition, which I had never even heard of. Of course, I had heard the song. It's one of those kind of classics that you hear. I mean, even I think Michael, Michael Buble has covered that song these days. Um, it, it was actually an interesting run of songs, and I'm curious how many of them you have heard of that. There's uh, that one that I just did, So no. Little Time, from 55 Days at Peking, no. which I hadn't heard. There was It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, the title song from that movie. Yes. And the song More, from the film Mondo King.
0: Nope. Well, maybe. I don't know. I guarantee How's it go? you've heard that song. That's um, it. It's it's. it's Feels Here. like a song that it's one of those that if it played, I know I've heard it. Okay, so more. Oh, ta, da, da,
1: yeah. Yeah. Right. So, what's interesting about more, this is also unrelated to charade, but I find it really interesting. That song um, came out with this film, Mondo Kane, that was a film that was this kind of spoof documentary. Um, that it was uh, basically a travelogue film going around the world, filming cultural practices with the intention to shock or surprise audiences. It spurred on a whole kind of genre that became called mondo films that were basically exploitation documentaries where you people would go around and film just over the top like crazy things from around the world and now I feel like that's you know what we see all the time on on videos on YouTube yeah. and and uh, uh you know TikTok and everything else that's kind of the whole I'm thing sorry. but anyway that's where it, weirdly it all came from this song in a song that doesn't even feel like it fits the tone Not of what at this all. movie is Anyway, just had to throw that out there. So that's, that was that award. Back to awards. Golden Globes. Um, uh, Audrey Hepburn was nominated for Best Actress at the Golden Globes, and Cary Grant was nominated for Best Actor at the Golden Globes. They both lost. And then uh, at the BAFTAs, Hepburn won for Best British Actress, and Cary uh, uh, Grant lost for Best Foreign Actor to Marcello Mastroianni in Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow peter stone won the best motion picture uh, screenwriting award for the edgar Allan poe awards and at the david di donatello awards it won the golden plate which is i think kind of an honorary prize for universal pictures for the artistic contribution i'm not really sure what that all means but um
0: there you go and how about at the box office did this little genre film end up making any money
1: well, Stanley Donen's film cost a cool $3 million to make, which is about $25.1 million in today's dollars. The movie was released December 5th, 1963, and while it didn't land in the top 10, it still did well for itself, earning nearly 13.5 million at the box office, or 112.8 million in today's dollars. That is a solid take, giving it adjusted profit per finished minute of 776,000, making it the most successful financial film of grants in this particular series, and this film was Stanley Donan's most financially successful film he made through his whole career.
0: So what do you think about this as we uh, as we wrap up our very brief Cary Grant uh, series? Uh, How does how does Cary Grant fit for you? Have you learned anything about uh, Grant and his work uh, that you feel like has changed the way you look at him?
1: He's an actor who is just very easy to watch. Like, I've never had an issue watching Cary Grant. He just makes a film that much joyful to enjoy because yeah. he's he brings so much personality and just that suave, debonair, kind of Hollywood movie star feel to it. I, I think that, that he is really strong in in, uh, in his career. This film in particular, um, you know, I didn't tell the story, but this was, um, at the time I, you know, my, I had a, uh, a whose, uh, mom. So I guess my step-grandma, I would call her. She like was in like some video club, one of those things where you get a video, a VHS tape every month, you know, and this movie was, she gave it to me and I was just like, why are you giving me this? This was a point in my life where I'm like, you know, watching just nothing but kid movies. And so technically, this was probably the first grown-up movie that I ever actually owned. And I didn't watch it for a while. And then when I finally watched it, I'm like, oh my God, it's just magical. And I think a lot of it is just kind of the Cary Grant, Audrey Hepburn, and just kind of that spy thriller comedy that we have. It's just, it's a very easy film to watch. And Grant is just, I mean, he fits that, right? He's just very easy to watch.
0: He really does. It's so funny. I, for me, watching this movie after watching particularly starting with Arsenic and Old Lace where he he really showcases that sort of buffoonery um and and I had not made a connection of his deep vaudeville roots before watching that movie and you can you can totally see him just kind of unleashing that part of his his body and his face in that movie and i didn't connect with it that well because i my cary grant is not that guy my cary grant is the movie star cary grant and so this is my Cary Grant. This guy represents everything that I I feel like I know about him and I expect from him. And then when he does things like the weird faces, he does have a couple of <laughs> mock faces in this movie that I think are so good and so part of his relationship there that are specifically and directly uh, sort of tied to that. That background and and where it was over the top for me in Arsenic, Arsenic and Old Lace, it is on point for me in a movie like this one. And I just um, I just love it. I think one of the things that is is interesting about Cary Grant is that he is, you know, in my head, at least he's not noted as a guy who fell because of controversy. Right. He left acting. He got into business. He he, he had a, a healthy by all rights, a healthy career after uh, his Performing days, right in his older years, and um, he just—I I think he's an interesting guy. There's there's a quote that stands out on his Wikipedia page where he says, "Death, of course, I think of it, but I don't want to dwell on it. I think the thing you think about when you're my age is how you're going to do it and whether you'll behave well. And I—I uh, I feel like that—that that is the—that's how Cary Grant should go out, right? You know, he's a guy that just is always supposed to be around and always supposed to be charming and didn't end in a in a flurry of, um, you know, horrifying disrespect or crime or, you know, moral injustice. Yeah, right.
1: I mean, he went out as I think a lot of Hollywood uh, leads do at the time where, you know, Somebody who could never settle down had far too many wives yeah <laughs> but but still, it just uh, yeah, I think there's just something very uh,
2: but, but I wonder like this forgivable
0: is a, maybe forgivable is the word, maybe that's not a word we're supposed to use anymore yeah, I, okay, I don't know, uh, but i don't get like i don't feel like and this is probably my ignorance, but I haven't found anything that says he was just a horrible, horrible person or he was horrible to women he he married and divorced a lot um I guess. I mean, how many how many brides did he end up with? Five. Uh,
1: he had five uh, wives.
0: He married and divorced a lot with five yes. wives over the course of his life. But but uh, I don't know. Does that does that make him I don't know, bad guy? Uh, no, Which I don't. Maybe I mean, to his you know, ex wives.
1: Well, you know, I I I never. I don't know if any of it was like bad endings. I I haven't really looked into his his uh, the way his relationships ended, but. I just think it was one of those things where I, you know, he I, and he did have a period where he was getting into some drugs and stuff. But I don't know. I don't feel like he was ever um, the guy who was, you know, having tangles with the police all the time because right. he was doing things. Yeah.
0: yeah well, he, uh, you know, he was fantastic to watch, and and um, I just I really enjoyed this little series. Would love to come back and fill in some more holes down the road someday. I'm really curious now. To I haven't seen any of the
1: other films that he did with Donan. I'd be curious to see those ones. Yeah,
0: right. That'd be an easy, easy set. But mm-hmm. well, I think it's probably time, Andy. I think it's time for we, for, for we, I think it's time for, we, for to- we to take it to the mat together. <laughs> let's <laughs> let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this very show. And there, if you swipe over in your show notes and you tap the word flickchart, It'll take you straight to this movie in the catalog so you can add it to your list and see how it stands up against ours.
2: First up, we have charade or La Caja Fall. Charade. Absolutely charade. Charade or Do the Right Thing. Oh, dear. I'd I love Do the, the Right charade Thing, charade but first. charade is awfully high on my chart. I'll tell you, right. I'm not
0: going to tell All you right. where it is yet, but charade or Up in the Air. Boy, talk about a movie that that highlights some of the same relationship dynamics. And come on, Clooney. Uh, yeah. He practically is Cary Grant.
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe a little more political, but yes. Yeah. I'd say charade.
0: Okay. Me too.
2: Charade or Harold and Um Charade. Charade for me too. Charade or Casablanca? Casablanca. Charade for me. All right. Let's do it. All right, here we go. One, One, two, 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 three. three. Scissors. Paper.
0: Oh, I was even late and I lost. I know. (laughs) (laughs) What was that all about?
1: (laughs) I had a vapor lock. That's 100% on you. Yeah. (laughs) Charade or ET, the extraterrestrial? Charade for me. Charade. Charade or Raising Arizona?
2: Charade. Charade for me. Charade or Network?
0: uh (laughs) network charade for me really okay it's really Mm -hmm. high on your list andy like (laughs) extraordinarily really high
2: it's pretty high let's do it all right here we go one One, two two, three three. rock Rock. rock charade or the godfather oh dear I, I, I feel guilty
1: because, like we have passed some that we've ranked that it's lower than yeah on my personal chart, but we just haven't come up against them, and yeah. they're lower on this chart because of you <laughs> because they got they
0: got they lost <laughs> because some I, of their I did not show up yeah. and, and play a good game. That's right. So I'm I'm Godfather. I'll say charade, <laughs> oh, Andy,
1: but I'm going to give it to you. Because I feel guilty about having Charade
0: end up as our number one. And you don't feel good about me being able to play the game. I see I what's going like, on here.
1: I feel like, yeah. yeah. Sometimes I just got to say, you know what? Pete's having a losing streak. He's I just got to give it to him right now. <laughs> you
0: this know is what? me I'm gonna take being the pity. other
1: horse rider in Seabiscuit, letting, slowing down just so you can get ahead.
0: I'm Seabiscuit? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you are Seabiscuit here.
0: Well, I guess uh, one of us has to be Seabiscuit. Okay.
1: All right. All right. Well, we're going to end it there. Charade is number two on our chart.
0: Holy crap. <laughs> that is bananas. That's <laughs> not even that high on my chart. That's it's really not high on my chart. Okay. All right. and And because it's number two, like, when's the last time? It's never going to be touched. It'll be years before it's touched. It is cemented now. Well, I'll tell you, Pete,
1: this is number four on my personal chart. So, so it's not it's, far yeah, it's from not number far. two. Number but four. Uh, it's way up there for me. It's one of those ones where I think because it was a film I watched as a kid and it was a more grown up film, like, I just have such an affinity for this film. It is just like everything about it is is spot on perfect. So uh, absolutely uh, one of my all time favorites uh four out of thirty forty three eighty two so it is a full on hundred percent on my personal
0: well click chart it's uh one eighty four out of fourteen fifty two on my list so it's pretty high uh it it's an eighty seven percent don't get me wrong, I liked it I love how I feel like I've painted myself as the villain in this conversation <laughs> uh, i feel
1: like i feel guilty that it's number two like i'm like i feel like it shouldn't be that high, but it's just it's you know, it's just the way that things play out.
0: I feel like I just tripped Mother Teresa going upstairs. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. we all know that story. Flick, flick chart. <laughs> if I were to take my uh, my flick chart experience here, uh, trusting the algorithm over at uh, Letterbox dot slash the next reel, this should be a four and a half star. I'm going to give it the full five. I mean, I like the movie uh, that much uh, <laughs> with a heart. I really. Uh, I I did enjoy the movie, and uh, I'll stick to that. I assume it's the same for you. (laughs) Don't even. Do I have to ask? You don't have to. Full-on
1: five stars and a heart. All right.
0: Well, that that does it, right, for this movie, and that does it for our very brief uh, Cary Grant series. Where do we go from here?
1: Well, we are going to be taking a brief... Uh, hiatus. We're kind of shortening our hiatus by, I think, just by a couple weeks.
0: Is that about right? Something like that. I don't. I don't even really know what is. It, what are we doing? We usually take the month of July off. Yes, we do,
1: but we are going to be skipping that, and we are going to be uh, jumping into a. Well, I shouldn't say no. skipping. We're just we're cutting it in half. I think, and sometime mid July-ish. I don't know the exact day, but we will be kicking off a new series. We're going to be looking at the Friday fan- franchise. We're going to start with Friday from 1995, <laughs> next Friday from 2000, and Friday after next, 2002. This is one we've been holding off on because there continues to be talk about a fourth last Friday, uh, but I think that they have uh, since uh, put the film on hold since um, one of the... Uh, John Witherspoon, who had been in them, had, uh, had passed away. So
0: not just had been in them dominated (laughs) he is very funny Uh, i have not seen all of these but friday was one of my deep deep guilty pleasures gives me weirdly great joy subversive joy watching that movie you
1: introduced me to it in college and it uh, definitely is one that i've not been able to forget i'm very excited about jumping into this and yeah i haven't seen the rest of them either so i'm very much looking forward to watching the rest of them
0: I can't I can't believe you're as enthusiastic as you are because of Chris Tucker in this movie.
1: I don't have a problem with Chris Tucker. I just have a problem with Chris Tucker in The Five uh The Fifth Element.
0: I don't know. We'll see how that pans out.
1: Like what's the one he did with Jackie Chan? Like those were great movies. Yeah, yeah
0: those were great Very movies. Fun. Uh, Very fun. For, uh, another or what was it? What was it that he did with the Shanghai No, that's Shanghai different... Knights. No, that was No, nope, that was with uh Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson and Jackie Chan. Um Yeah, the one where they're the cops. (laughs) Man, nobody understands the words coming out of your mouth. (laughs) Anyway, very good. Can't wait to talk about it. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always doeth. Amazon did again. Um, Amazon also struggled to portray the fact that this movie is in the public domain and there are a lot of bad copies of it.
1: <laughs> there are clearly a lot of people getting copies of copies of copies because everybody can make a copy of this one. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and it makes me think that maybe you and I should start the next real publishing where we just sell on Amazon all kinds of public domain stuff and never look at the reviews again.
1: I think that's a great idea.
0: Just like Amazon. Let's do it. Let's do our reviews, Andy. Would you like
1: to go first? Okay. Sure, I've got a one star by Zerfer who says, I'm honestly confused by the good reviews. This movie is terrible and not funny at all. I could go into detail why, but I don't see the point. It's trying to be Alfred Hitchcock and isn't. As far as I'm concerned... Two non admirable features of a film. Hmm. I'm not really sure what to make of that. What are two non admirable features?
0: I don't understand that. Yeah. No. Huh. But, but anyway, maybe, there's Maybe Dr. Renee Cadoni has something to say about it. Uh, Ooh, who what's says, the, What's he have to say? He says it's neither joke nor parody. An old American film directed by Stanley Donen starring Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn, plus few minors, among which Walter Matthau, James Coburn, and George Kennedy. It spans four genres, suspense, thriller, romance, chick flick, and comedy, all and none in a way. As a particular flair of the U.S. cinema at the time, like Billy Wilder's Irma La Douce, same year, it has been filmed in La Paris to a Henry Mancini score and theme song. La Paris has the sex appeal of Playboy Bunny's equally forgettable ersatz. Acting has been better by all. They seem to miss U.S. film canteen culture after work, except for some rude style of speech and behavior, a well-known reactive uncertainty of operating in a foreign language environment. Europe seems of little inspiration. And the local U.S. Embassy, the only safe haven in such. Silly. Oh, my. You know what? I like Dr. Codoni. He's very serious about this. He's very (laughs) serious about it. And at least he's thought about it.
1: (laughs) He certainly has put
0: thoughts into this. Yes, he has. Thank you, Dr. Codoni. And thank you, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006.